Learning is difficult. Teaching is difficult. I imagine learning to teach is difficult. And not everyone learns the same or needs to be taught the same way. Teachers all over the world face problems where they have to learn to teach in different ways to suit the needs of each student. And one particular type of student that might not be getting enough attention are students that have refugee experiences. My name is Louis Colorotolo. I am a student at the University of Guelph, trying my absolute best to get a PhD in food science. And, and when I'm not learning what I should be learning, I like to learn what other students are learning. A long way of saying I like to talk to other graduate students and see what they're doing. And this week I'm talking with Serena McDermott, who is a teacher and a learner herself, and someone who's learning how to teach and teaching teachers how to teach, specifically the type of student that Serena is trying to learn a better way to teach is refugee students. And you might be surprised at the subtle differences that you need to have as a teacher to do these things, but let's have Serena tell you a little bit first. You might think like, oh, how does that actually interact with trauma at all? But it offers children a sense of control over their environment, which is something that if you've experienced trauma was often lacking for you. And it can offer a sense of safety too. Through learning ways to teach, we can become better teachers of people who just want to learn. So let's clarify one thing before the episode gets started. There is a lot of variability between the experiences of youth with refugee backgrounds. So each person has a different story. And it's important to note that the experiences of displacement are not universally bad, nor do the children always suffer from negative consequences from their experiments. Uh, even sometimes this experience can cause post-traumatic growth after their difficulties are experienced. So with the idea that not all refugee experiences are bad or good, I have one last idea for you to keep in mind. We are graduate students. We don't know everything, but that's why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Serena. How are you doing today? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I am doing all right over here. Could you do us a favor and walk through your educational history? Sure. Um, I started my... Uh, post-secondary education at the University of Waterloo, and I did a Bachelor of Science in Health Studies and Gerontology. So I studied um, health and especially relating to like seniors, and I thought, hmm, this is interesting to me, but I kind of want to go to the other end of the age spectrum. So following that, I moved down the street to Wilfrid Laurier University, and I did a Bachelor of Education where I learned how to teach in elementary schools. And coming out of that, the job market was a little tough. So I thought, while I'm supply teaching, I'm going to go back to Waterloo. I did a Master's of Applied Science in uh, Developmental and Communication Science, so a, sort of a psychology of child development. And I decided to stay there and continue on and do my PhD. So I'm in the second year of my PhD now at the University of Waterloo. And I think I'm in about grade 24, if I have calculated correctly. <laughs> Yeah, it really stacks on. You know, at some point you have to decide to stop counting. Otherwise, you're going to torture yourself. So, all right, you you started with geriatrics. You moved down to early childhood education. Now, are you somewhere in between all of that? Or are we still more so working with kids? More so working with kids. Um, most of my current research is kind of 
in the, the older children and teenage years, like 13 to 19. Um, but yeah, definitely, I still have that focus on kids. I still work part-time as a supply teacher. So uh, if you're out at Breslau Public School this afternoon, I might see you there. I uh, I don't plan on going back to uh, school. Um, I've I've been in school for twenty four or something like years like that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there. I appreciate the offer though. <laughs> what 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 in general do you do? Um, in general, I research ways that we can support students at school, and particularly my focus is on a certain group of students, and those are students who have a refugee background who have relocated to a high-income country like Sweden or Canada. So, all right, we got refugees. They're coming from all over the world at this point, and Canada does accept a lot of refugees. So this is probably kind of a common occurrence uh, that's happening in our public schools, even in places like Waterloo and you know outside surrounding areas. It's not necessarily that refugees are just coming to large cities like Toronto. They're coming all over Canada. Mm-hmm. And that actually was part of my motivation for uh, continuing on and doing my PhD is as a teacher in Waterloo Public Schools, I was meeting a lot of students with refugee backgrounds. And there's, there's a, a universality to a lot of issues in childhood and, and teenage years. But there's also a set of really unique experiences that kids who have uh, gone through that refugee process um, have experienced. So they do have some unique needs. And I felt that there wasn't really a good understanding of those needs and what teachers could do to support them better. So that was kind of the motivation for my work. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, blow open the doors of theory or anything right now, but a teacher's job is to teach, correct? Well, <laughs> it's interesting well. you raise that point because I <laughs> literally have just concluded a study where I talked to teachers and I said, what do you think your job is when it relates to students' mental health? And you're right, uh, definitely the job is to teach, but then we revealed or like uncovered, I guess, that teachers had a lot of other beliefs too. Um, They believed that their job was also to have a supportive relationship with the students and to make connections for the student, like connect the student to services outside of the school. So yes, a teacher's job is to teach, but increasingly there are these extra responsibilities and and layers of um of duties that teachers have and we we see that kind of reflected in government too like if if you go and look at government documents they tend to talk about teachers as being responsible for like the holistic care of children the well-being of of the children in their care i think it's a great thing we don't want teachers to you know (laughs) only be concerned with do you know your your equations and uh, that, and then I don't care anything else about you. Um, but at the same time, being a teacher, I, I realized that that's a really challenging thing to put on, on the plate of a teacher, to be responsible for all of the like educational development of a child, but also be responsible for their emotional well-being and their safety and their, their sense of self-esteem. Like it's, it's a big, it's a tall bill. That sounds like emotionally exhausting to have to do as a teacher. Yeah. And in my my work where I was interviewing teachers, I definitely heard that from them. Um, You know, we were talking to teachers who care really deeply about their students. And they were often put in really difficult situations where 
they see a student who needs help and like some sort of mental health help and they think to themselves okay well i can refer this student somewhere and i i might be referring them to someone who is like really expertly qualified but i also might be just setting them up to sit on a waiting list for months and months so do i take the risk and try and help them and maybe do something wrong hopefully not but maybe and uh, at least that way they get some sort of response quickly or do i maybe send them off to someone who doesn't care as much about them as I do, or who's going to have them sitting on a waiting list for months and months. And that's a really difficult situation to be in for teachers and are very difficult to navigate. Yeah. And that, that sounds incredibly difficult uh, because, you know, we, we hear so much about how, how much of your adult self comes from experiences in childhood. And if they're experiencing these difficulties, a lot of times it's the teachers who see it you know, first or most, because, you know, as much as, as we want to, you know, believe otherwise, we see, we see our teachers like a lot and they're a big part of our lives. So those teachers are there, they're constantly observing you and, and they're watching and they're watching you grow and they, they want the best for you, but they don't necessarily always have the tools to do that. Yeah, that's, it's totally true. And that's something we heard from the teachers um, that I talked with. I should add here that this group of teachers that I talked with were actually teachers in Sweden. So a lot of my work so far has taken place in Sweden. And uh, I know you mentioned this, this kind of idea of teachers are sometimes like almost taking on a parental role, right? Like they're spending so much time with these kids. And something that's really interesting to note in Sweden that's different than Canada is that in Sweden, a lot of young refugees are unaccompanied, meaning that they've traveled to Sweden on their own with no parents, no guardians. Um, so really, in those cases, the teachers are really often parental figures. Like they are one of the few constant adults in that child's life. So I think it kind of um, amplifies some of these problems that we see. That's not, wow. Yeah, it's not something that we see in Canada. Just because of Canada's geography, you, it's uncommon that a child would be able to reach Canada like on foot or, you know, without having paperwork to come to Canada. Whereas in Sweden, it's connected um, much more closely to the rest of Europe and folks are able to arrive like by foot or, or boat without paperwork and things like that. Yeah, that's that paints a very different picture of uh, the entire situation. Mm -hmm. So, OK, we have these children that come in and um, they're enrolled in the public schools. And we have these teachers who want to do their best to take care of the educational needs and the mental needs of uh, all of the children that they are teaching. However, and I feel it is safe to assume and correct me if I'm wrong, most teachers are aren't refugees they don't have refugee backgrounds do they uh, it depends somewhat on on the location that you're talking about um, it was slightly more common in Sweden to see that or at least to see um, some sort of staff in schools who have a refugee background so something that's really interesting about the Swedish model is that they have um, I guess something akin to educational assistance and they call them language mentors so this is someone that the school hires who speaks the same language as children who like recently arrived children. Um, that's very unique. That's not something that we have in Canada. 
Um, if you show up speaking like Swahili in Canada, you're going to be, yeah, just there's there's not really anyone who's going to be um, directly responsible for knowing your language and communicating with you outside of, you know, interpreters who are going to make sure you have like the paperwork that you need. But besides that, um, so in Sweden, we do um, often see language mentors with a refugee background. Um, but yeah, in Canada, it's very rare, especially given the fact that, um, at least in Ontario, you have to spend six years in university um, to become a teacher. And it's less likely that you're going to have the resources or the, the educational background um, to spend those six years if you have had these challenges. Yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of layers that are stacked on top of each other that makes this less of a common thing, having a teacher with direct uh, refugee experience. Mm-hmm. All right, so we have teachers. Uh, they want the best for us. They don't all have refugee experience. Uh, so how could we possibly expect teachers to be able to take care of the needs of children who have refugee experience? It just doesn't seem like we can. Well, it's it's challenging. Um, like I said at the beginning, like there are these universal uh, principles, I guess you could call them, in relating to children. Like there, it's always going to benefit you to be like warm and compassionate, for example. So there are some things that, you know, they don't need special training for. Um, but at the same time, yeah, when it comes to children with a refugee background, yeah, they're there is a benefit to having some special training, to having a deeper understanding of what that experience of becoming a refugee, being displaced, like what that entails and what that means. Um, And just giving teachers more training relating to mental health generally. So like how do children experience and process trauma? That's something that most refugee youth have gone through is is some trauma associated with their journey. And it's also something that, unfortunately, the majority of children who don't have a refugee background have gone through, too. Trauma is very common. And my my sense is that teachers are not getting a lot of training on how to teach in ways that are trauma-informed. So then would you say the big pinch hold in all of this is the lack of training? Or do we still need to better understand how to train people? in order to, to, I don't know, make things better in the future? It's hard to put my finger on, on one main issue uh, because I think this is, it's such a complex problem. Um, I study this issue with what we call the ecological systems model. So it's this model where we want to consider the culture, cultural context in which something's happening, the interactions between the people who are involved in this system. So things like how do the teachers interact with the schools and how do the educational policies change the way that the teachers act and how does that change the school? Um, so when you when you ask me to pinpoint one spot, my mind goes to this big model of all of these interacting pieces and I think, well, every single one of those pieces, something could be a little different. I, I can tell you a few of the ideas that I have for some of these different pieces. So like when it comes to uh, the government piece, I think having a better definition of what the responsibilities of a teacher are is an important thing that we're missing. And I think funding for organizations outside of schools would actually make a big difference. So having um, like mental health supports outside of the schools that teachers can refer students to more reliably would actually make a teacher's job a lot easier. 
Um, but at the same time, as you suggested, having more training for teachers is also important. It, I am just aware of the fact that as a teacher, we already we are having so much training. We get trained on how to teach math, how to teach literacy, how to keep kids safe, how to diffuse crisis situations, how to administer EpiPens, what to do if a student hits their head and gets a concussion. We have so much training already, um, and that's a good thing. I definitely encourage learning and and uh, you know widening your skill set, but I don't think that end all be all is training teachers on one other thing to know because we already have a lot of things that we need to know you know and i i really like how you put that because i think a lot of times we we kind of shrug things off as oh well if you receive the training then everything will be better uh and and that's not realistic think about all the things that i've been trained to do or like even when i worked a part-time job do you know how many training sessions i went to that i Wait, am I legally allowed to say that I just completely ignored them? I don't think I'm legally. Yeah, I'll cut that out. No, I probably won't cut that out. So, uh, you know, we, we can't just say training solves everything. Um, I really like this idea of the ecological model. What did you what did you call it again? Ecological, ecological something? systems theory ecological systems theory. So if we think about ecology, you know, that's the study of, you know, the interaction of organisms. We think about something like uh, a bird eats a bee and then the uh, 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 tiger eats the bird and then human eats the tiger. You know, they, they all play roles and they all connect to each other. So you're saying that sometimes when it comes to how we're able to serve children, we look at things from this ecological system model. Yeah, I think increasingly where scientists and researchers are using a model like this, which encourages us to look more broadly at the context in which our research is happening. Um, you've probably had a lot of folks on as guests here where you know, they study something super, super specific in a very controlled environment, and that is an important part of science. But there's also a, a section of science that needs to be a little more um, understanding of real world contexts, I guess. So that's, that's kind of where I see myself in sciences, more how do these things play out in the real world, and how do the different um, people involved impact the outcome? So I always think um, of the child at the center, and then I imagine these concentric rings around them. And in their immediate environment, we have like parents and teachers. And then in the, the further out environments, we have the interactions that are happening between parents and teachers. And we have um, schools and we have government policies and we have like social norms within the country. And all of these things are filtering down and impacting the life of that child. So when I'm doing research, I try to look a little bit at all of those different levels and think about how is this changing things for that child. And it's, it's interesting to do this work because to understand the child, you don't always have to just focus like on talking to the child. For example, in this most recent work that I did, I was talking to teachers, but I was still able to learn a lot about how uh, children can be supported better. So to to if I were to put a blanket statement over this, um, sum everything up, uh, it's really complicated, isn't it? <laughs> it? I think that statement could apply to almost everything, right? <laughs> it pretty much does. I mean, I, 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 I never lose. Life in general is pretty complicated. 
Yeah, so you have all of these interacting bodies. You have these bodies on their own. You have these interacting bodies. um, And change needs to come from multiple different sources in order to kind of like trickle down through this, you know, ecological system model. So what role do you play in all of this? That's something that I'm navigating right now. Oh, <laughs> I didn't want to ask you something too hard. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I I mean, you probably have this experience a bit as a grad student. You're kind of finding your way in the academic world, and you're trying to figure out, you know, what does my research mean for the world? I'm researching this topic because I think it's important and because I think it's really interesting. But how can I communicate with people about it to prob- to try to affect some sort of change and, and make the world a better place? It's a big question and something I'm figuring out. But, you know, if any listeners are out there and you have some sort of sway in the educational world and you want to work with me. <laughs> Here's that. my info. Hit yeah. me up. Looking for collabs. That's right. So, all right. You are also, as you mentioned earlier, a teacher. That is true. Have you, through your studies, uh, particularly through through the most recent set of your studies, have you noticed and made any differences in the way that you teach based off of the things that you learned? Probably the biggest change I've made is uh, teaching with a more trauma-informed lens. So that's a very kind of technical teacher jargon there. Um, But basically, there's this set of teaching tools that you can use, which are informed by the fact that children experience trauma and that changes the way that they um, process information and the way that they interact with other people. And you can teach in ways that take into consideration that child's experiences of trauma. So I think that's probably the biggest change I've made is using more of these types of techniques. Do you have an example of any, and, and, and correct me, I'm, I'm going to say this incorrectly, but I'm going to try anyways, trauma-informed lens? Well, <laughs> just repeat it because trauma I have no in, idea what it is. We'll say trauma-informed teaching practices. Okay, okay, trauma-informed teaching practices. Could you give us a practical practice? Sure. Um, so I think it a trauma-informed uh, teaching strategy would be to offer a lot of choices. Um, For example, when you are having students do an assignment, you can give them choice in what topic they write about, and you can give them choice in how they actually deliver that information to you. I just said write about, but you could have them speak about it. You could have them write in their first language. Um, You can have them make a PowerPoint presentation about it. And you might think like, oh, how does that actually interact with trauma at all? But It offers children a sense of control over their environment, which is something that if you've experienced trauma was often lacking for you. And it can offer a sense of safety, too. Okay, then this makes like logical sense, right? You know, they are able to choose what uh, form of media or, you know, expression that, you know, makes them feel the most comfortable. And I, I have to admit, like, from, you know, my experiences, I always liked when I had the option. And I'll tell you what, I every single time I avoided the writing option. I'm not a fan of writing, but I love talking. I know, shocker, right? <laughs> Um, so I, I know that I always appreciated those and I had no idea that they had even some sort of background of, um, helping people with traumatic experiences. 
I can give you one other example, too, of a time when a trauma-informed teaching would, would be at play. And that is when I'm uh, responding to a child who's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So I think that the natural inclination is if a child is, say, just sitting there, uh, not participating. The natural inclination is sort of like, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? Start participating, like follow the rules. But when you have a bit more of this understanding of trauma, you can look at that sort of reaction as a possible situation where like the fight or flight mode has been activated. And it's really interesting um, with children who have a refugee background, there are so many different sorts of things that can trigger that feeling of fight or flight. They've had such diverse journeys and unique experiences to get to where they are that it's hard to know what sorts of um, stimuli around them, what sorts of things in the environment could trigger this feeling of I'm in danger and put them into this fight or flight mode. So it gives you this new understanding that when you see a child sitting there doing nothing, all of a sudden there's this wheel turning in your head that says, hmm, are they kind of shut down? Are they having this internal physical response to feeling in danger? And if so, what can I do to help alleviate the, that danger and get them to a place where their body is calm enough where they don't have that pounding heart and a like fast paced breath and you know, dilated pupils, all the things that happen when we feel like we're being attacked. Like where, how can I get them to a place where they're not feeling that anymore? And then we can talk through and, and figure out this problem together. But under having that understanding of uh, fight or flight mode, I think is really important too. And that that sounds so complicated. It's not the first time I said something sounds complicated. But let me let me try to 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 put a big blanket over this. Uh, teaching is tough, right? I mean, we right teaching's difficult. Teaching is tough. Teaching is rewarding. Teaching is oh, okay. exciting. Uh, teaching is tough. Yeah, so you don't have to just know how to do addition to teach addition. It's not just, you know, you know, a corral of people who are like, oh, well, I know how to multiply, so I'm going to teach how to multiply. A lot, a lot goes into learning how to teach and how to, like, teach children. Then that, that's why we divide up early childhood education and adolescent education and, and post-secondary education. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad that I have conveyed this to you because I think that's a very common feeling among, you know, like parents that I interact with that they kind of think, well, I was a student, so I would know how to be a teacher. And I think you would know how to do some aspects of teaching for sure. But there's a lot of stuff happening kind of behind the scenes that you might not be as aware of. Okay, so then when it comes down to it, the research that you're doing, you know, uh, you teach and you're gaining practices from this, and you want to be able to help make changes in other teachers as well. You're not, you're not just studying this so that you can become a better teacher. So then where does this trickle down? How do you plan on getting some of the knowledge that you learned out there? How can you, and I'm putting a lot on you. This is a, this is a big weight. I'm passing it right to you. How can you change everything? Yes, that is a big weight. I guess I'm starting small. I'm trying to uh, talk to more people, spread awareness. This is maybe part of, of that journey. Um, I've been uh, producing more content, like little videos to share online to help 
um, spread some of these ideas. I give talks at conferences. Um, I've been working a little bit with the school board um, and also actually with the University of Waterloo. I have I uh, do trainings for teaching assistants at the University of Waterloo, teaching about how to use trauma-informed practices at the university level. So it's a it's a process, right? I think over time, I hope uh, I can kind of get bigger and bigger in the the scope of the changes that I'm making. But right now, I'm kind of starting small and connecting with people a little more locally. Yeah, and you know that's good to know because I think a lot of times when people view academia or you know higher education, it tends to seem like it's this little tight bubble, uh, and we just kind of shout at each other from this bubble, and, and and our voices hit the walls of the bubble and then just echo back at each other. But the ultimate goal of what you're doing is to make change in the real world. Mm -hmm. And you have to go through a lot of avenues before that's possible. And one of the biggest avenues, which uh, might seem, you know, kind of a no brainer, is learning it. You have to learn these things because it's not like there's a one textbook that says everything you absolutely need to know. And the issue is that no one's reading the textbook. We still need to figure out a lot of these things because the situations are constantly changing. Yeah, there's there's this process of figuring out uh, what's going on. And then there's the process of, okay, what would actually improve the situation? Because there's, you know, you can know what's going on, but you don't necessarily know what we should do about it. And then there's that step of, okay, now how do I make that thing happen? And it, as you say, like, there's no textbook that tells you how to do each of these things. Um, you know, in grad school, you don't necessarily get a lot of training on how do you take your research and turn it into something that matters in the real world. That's that's the tough part. You know, it, it's hard enough to learn it, but then you have to, like, disseminate all that information mm -hmm. and Boy, that was a big word. That was like a $5 word for me. Disseminate? Oh, my goodness. I got to stop. All right, we're done. Episode's over. Um, all right, so could you uh, do a, a favor? Could you just like wrap everything up, tie a nice bow on it? Could you give us a couple sentences that explains everything you do um, and what we talked about today? So if I'm summing everything up, I would say that there are a lot of refugees in the world, and a lot of those refugees are children. A lot of those children are going to travel to high-income countries like Canada and Sweden, and they'll take part in the education system here. And in the education system, they often need special supports. So we need to do some research to understand what the needs are and how those students can be best supported. And when we're thinking about how to best support them, we want to be considering not just the teacher's role, not just the parent's role, but also you know, government's role, society's role, and uh, how all of these different pieces interact with each other. Very well said. Well, thank you for summing everything up, and thanks for talking with us today. It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. Learn, teach, teach, learn. I have said those words so many times in the past half hour. But the truth is we are still learning, which is why we're moving on to the final segment of this show in which we do a fact check to show that uh, we might not have gone everything right the first time around. So, Serena and I both listened to the episode, and we didn't find anything necessarily wrong, but Serena let me know that she was a miss that at no point in the show did she actually give anyone who is listening a chance to support youth with refugee backgrounds. 
So we're going to take this opportunity to point out a few different organizations that are always in need of volunteer time and money. So at the local level, there is the Reception House in Waterloo Region, and it is the first point of contact for refugees resettling in the area. The WUSC World University Services of Canada, which operates out of the most Canadian universities, has a refugee scholarship program to provide sponsorships and funding to undergrads arriving to Canada as refugees. And at the global level, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees is the UN agency which aids and protects refugees around the world. So listeners can find many ways to volunteer and give on each of these organizations at their websites. We've done enough learning for now, so that concludes this episode of We Know Some Stuff.